Leyte Island in the Philippines is absolutely beautiful. It has the type of sand that you think of when you picture paradise. Light colored, warm, soft, and comforting. Crystal blue waters splash lazily against the shore as the soft, warm breeze rustles in the palm fronds above your head. It's 85 degrees of island paradise perfection, and it's always a nice place to be. Unless you ask Bryce Stampanoni about it. Bryce has a different perspective. What's this island look like? Because I look at pictures, mm-hmm. and it's pretty beautiful. It, like it, it looks like a tropical paradise. So that's not what I saw. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So when our helicopter landed, the uh, the back door dropped down, and I saw another helicopter, and there were Marines loading. Some other Marines that were already on the island, they had gotten there before us with another boat. Uh, they were already loading body bags onto another helicopter, and there was a news crew that was taking video or photos and stuff like that. And um, so right there we got off and drove the vehicle off, and uh, it was there was just nothing. You could see the mountain where it had given way, and it looked like somebody had just taken a butter knife and carved out a nice wedge and then just let everything else loose and fall. So there, was, there wasn't a whole lot. Um, there, I think there was one shack that was still standing there that I remember anyways. On February 17th, 2006, at approximately 10.30 in the morning on Leyte Island in the Philippines, a massive mudslide let loose from a mountainside, burying a village and an elementary school. In an instant, 1,126 people lost their lives. In addition to the lives lost, 900 people were displaced, losing not only their friends and families, but also their shelter and everything they own in the world. My friend Bryce Stampanoni was there to help. His unit in the Marines had been called in, and I sat down to ask him about his journey. I wanted to better understand what it was like to be in the military and why Bryce joined in the first place. So that's where we started. So why did you become a Marine? My stepdad was a Marine. I always remember growing up, him talking so highly about it. You know, honor, courage, commitment is something that he always pushed with me, and those are the core values of the Marine Corps. Yeah, those values seem to resonate with a lot of people in the Marines. And, like, you guys are like a brotherhood. Uh, Even knowing, like, the exact day and time that it was created, right? November 10th. November 10th. 1775. You know that right off the bat. Yeah, and I read a little bit of a history on that as well. So, like, it really does feel like um, when I've met other Marines and I've seen Marines meet each other, mm-hmm. there seems to be like, it doesn't matter if you know them or not, like, they're no, a brother. Not at all. Yeah. I mean, on the light end, 
to begin with, like you have to go some through rough training together, which is intense. Mm-hmm. And that, that sort of wrecks you mentally and physically. And it's supposed to, right? Like, it, yep. like you're supposed to experience this breakdown. What's like, what's the purpose of kind of breaking you? Like wh- wh- why does the military want to do that? Yeah. It's there to break you and break you down and then build you back up. So you break down to your lowest point so that you realize that you are an individual and you need help, you know, and you're a part of a team and the team will not survive and succeed without everybody coming together. So for that same reason, if one person messes up, everybody's going to pay for it. I got caught chewing gum in boot camp and uh, everybody paid pretty, pretty dearly for it. <laughs> did, did, do your brothers make you pay for what you did? Well, sure. <laughs> <laughs> so then what's it actually like being a Marine? You know, they always say, be comfortable being uncomfortable. You know, we don't get the best gear. They don't spend a whole lot of money on us, but we're expected to do the best job with whatever we have. So we adapt, improvise, and overcome to any situation. And you guys, a lot of times, are like front lines. Like when something goes down, Marines go in and sort of blaze a trail. Is that the idea? Yep. We're uh, the tip of the spear. So we go in take territory and then another you know like the army hey they're good too they come in they occupy and then we move on and we take more territory and keep going like that so give me the time frame so you enlisted what year 2004 and then you were uh you were enlisted for how long uh five years uh active and then three years reserve and when you were when you were first active um you went to, you were, at one point you were stationed like down in the San Diego area? Yep. Yeah, that's where I was on active duty. Okay. And you told me like at that, at what point you were attending even like a, a church down there, like some, was it Rick Warren? Was it Saddlebacks church? Yeah, yeah it was. One of my buddies um, in my unit, he was actually from Seattle, Washington as well. And he had done some research and found Saddlebacks. So we would go up to Irvine and uh, go up there. He had a car, so. That's a big church, dude. Like, yeah. what was it like to actually go to Saddleback? Yeah, it was an experience. I mean, I'd never <laughs> been to a church that had a Starbucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's pretty neat. I don't think I've been to a church that has a Starbucks either. Yeah, I actually don't think it was a Starbucks, but it was a cafe of some sort where after the <laughs> service, you'd go grab some coffee and talk to your friends and stuff. Your relationship to like God and stuff at that point, mm-hmm. like you're going to a church. Mm-hmm. Um, what was what was going on in your head? Like, uh, did you did a friend invite you to go there, or did you like how did that work out? Yeah. So backing up a little bit, growing up, uh, went to church a bit with my grandparents, and you know my mom. We would go every once in a while, and I was a part of Sparks and whatnot. And um, my stepdad was kind of a turd used to uh, beat up on my mom quite a bit and me quite a bit. And so my relationship with God growing up was, you know, kind of every night praying that, you know, tomorrow would be a little bit easier, a little bit better, you know. Um, But after high school, you know, I worked construction before I joined the Marine Corps, didn't really attend church that often. I went with one of my buddies every once in a while. But um, once I joined the Marine Corps, it was 
you know, it was a place that I could go with a couple of friends, you know, to just go and kind of decompress with everything that was going on. Being the new guy, you get messed with a lot, you know, and there was a few of us new guys. So um, on the weekends, on Sundays, they'd kind of leave you alone. All the senior Marines would leave you alone. So you'd kind of go and do your own thing. And so that's what we would do to go decompress for the week and, you know, kind of recenter ourselves. In 2006, mm -hmm. your team, while you're on the boat, like you guys get uh, orders to go and help with a humanitarian effort mm -hmm. in the Philippines. Yep. My first deployment was on the 31st Mew. It's a Marine Expeditionary Unit. So your battalion gets on uh, a couple of ships. I was on the USS Essex, which is a large aircraft carrier. And uh, that group of ships and Marines, they go around the world and Usually the deployments consist of training events. With those deployments, you are also a part of like a rapid response type deal. So if something were to happen anywhere in the world, you can get anywhere within, you know, two weeks or whatever it is, however fast the boat can carry you there. Okay. And so assumingly you're somewhere on the Pacific at this point. Yeah. I, honestly, I can't remember exactly where we were, but we were somewhere. I remember we were on the boat and my platoon sergeant came into our birthing area, which is where we have all of our bunk beds. You know, they're stacked five high and you have about 18 inches to lay down in. And he said, hey, gather up. So we all came around him and he told us that there is a huge landslide in this little island called Leyte in the Philippines. And uh, they needed some help out there. And uh, there's a whole village that was covered with, uh, with this landslide. And we were gonna go see what we could do for him. So you, the boat turns and heads directly toward the Philippines at this yep. point. Yeah. And it takes about how many days to get there? Um, I want to say it took about four or five. It could have been less, um, but it definitely took a couple days to get there. And during that time, we prepped all of our trucks. We had Humvees in the bottom of the boat, and we had these uh, hovercrafts called LCACs. They could fit about nine Humvees on them, and there were three of them. So we were prepping all of our trucks, getting our gear in there, uh, so that when we landed, we could immediately go to the area and start helping out. There was no harbor for our boat, our huge ship to, you know, to dock up at. So what we ended up doing is we ended up getting there at night and they said there was no place for our boat to dock up at. So I was one of the Marines that went on the LCACs, those hovercrafts, and all three debarked the boat. And we pretty much went around the island trying to find a good spot where we could offload the vehicles. Well, the problem was is either it's densely jungle right there on the shore or you have a bunch of these, you know, shacks where these people live and they're, you know, made with mud and, you know, plywood and tarp. And if we were to drive up onto the beach there, it'd blow their houses over. So that became something that we just couldn't do. So we knew we weren't going to be able to debark using the LCACs getting everybody on the island. So then we quickly switched to helicopters. One of the things that stood out to me while hearing Bryce talk about his time in the Marines was the role that the church played in this very interesting time in his life. Woven within his story of boot camp and deployment, I was captivated to hear that the church for Bryce became a weekly escape from the pressures of his military life. It was a place to decompress, as he worded it. And I realized that this is how many people, including myself, have experienced church. 
And I honestly think that this is an amazing gift that people have received from the church for thousands of years. But after speaking with Bryce and thinking about the role the church played in his early military days, my mind began to wander to what many Christians might deem to be a problem facing the church today. At large, people are leaving in massive numbers from the institution that we call the church in America. The fact is, American Christianity has been on a slow decline for the past 20 years. There are approximately 5 million less Christians in 2019 than there were in the year 2000 in the U.S., according to Gallup Research. But what is more drastic and telling about the American institution of church is that over the same time period, somewhere in the neighborhood of 35 million American citizens who continue to identify as Christian have left church institutions and stopped going to weekly church services. Where have they all gone? Why are they leaving? And here's a bigger question for me. Why do I feel the same pull to follow them? A few weeks back in the middle of August, 2019, two notable Christian leaders left the church in a very public way. Many groups, pastors and musicians, bloggers, address these guys in condemning tones and with harsh words. You see, everyone was coming down on these guys as individuals, and all my friends and I could think of was, where had the church failed? How had the institution let these guys down? And how could we do better? If Josh Harris and Marty Sampson leaving the church were isolated incidents, then maybe it would be no big deal and we could put it off to an individual experience. But what if it's not just them? What if they represent the other 35 million who left before them? Because if that were the case, I think that we have a much bigger problem on our hands. My friend Kevin Bruchert has been in ministry for over 20 years and is currently the worship arts director at a UMC church in Gainesville, Florida. I asked him what he thought about the situation with Marty Sampson and Josh Harris, and his heart went out to these guys. I don't know if Josh Harris necessarily has walk and walked away from his faith, um, and, and I already know that Marty Sampson hasn't walked away from his faith. Um, what I would say is that we need to be more gracious with people on that journey. We need to be less afraid of terms like deconstruction because I think deconstruction is actually a really important process that a lot of people need to go through in order to reconstruct their faith. You got to take it apart before you can put it back together again. And I think it's important for us as a church to recognize and not resist because that's the thing is like we resist it because we can't control it. But I don't think we need to resist it. I think we just need to be more merciful. What Jude 122 have mercy on those who doubt. Like, let's be more merciful for those who have questions for the, on those who, who are even the leaders that are going through it. And let's try to lead them better. And not lead them, like even to say that, I'm not saying lead them to control them. 
I am saying lead them to point them to Jesus. The church should have started from a place of brokenheartedness for those two guys and saying, man, we really didn't, we didn't serve these guys well. What can we do? How can we come alongside you? How can we pray for you? How can we sit in those dark questions with you? Because it's like mourning. It's just like, it's just, it's just like grief. Like when we grieve with people, we don't show up and say, God is in control. Like it's going to be okay. Let's go sing a song and everything's good. No, we sit in the dark place with the people we love and we don't say anything. We just sit there and we listen. Jude 1, 20 through 22. Dear friends, build yourselves up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. I also talked to my friend Matt Labarger. He's been a pastor for over 20 years. He went to Northwest University in Kirkland, Washington for his bachelor's and followed it up with a master's degree in theology from Regent College in Vancouver, British Columbia. We sat down to talk about the same subject and thankfully he had a few thoughts to offer. I went through a stage um, in my education, both my undergrad and then also my time at Regent where my entire Christianity was deconstructed. I mean, and in a sense, I, I, okay, it's, it scared the living, you know, bejesus out of me at the time. But at this point now, I absolutely believe it's, it's vital to my discipleship, to, to my upbringing, to my theological training. Yep. And the great thing about places like Regent and other institutions where you begin to uh, find for the first time in your life that you can ask questions that you've never asked. Or maybe you have asked before and you've been shut down. And now you're in this academic think tank with people that come from vastly different backgrounds than you do. And you find they're asking some of the same questions. They're asking some different questions, but now that you've heard of them, well, hell yeah, you want an answer to that too, right? And, and you begin to explore this. For a while, it's scary and, and your faith deconstructs. But by the end of it, it, you know, if you're lucky and everyone's got their own stories, but for me, by the time I came out of my education, you know, they kind of held my hand and, and, and I went through a reconstruction and I came out with a Christianity that it looked very different than when I began my theological journey. If anyone had stopped me halfway through at any given point on the wrong night or after the wrong class and, and asked me to give a faith statement people, I mean, if that got posted online, people might be having a question of who's to blame for my apostasy. And it's, yeah. and it wasn't there. It's, it, it was, give me some time. Give me a few more years. Talk to me again. I'm in this process. So let me say from the beginning, it, I'm not too concerned in that sense for where these two gentlemen are. Again, beans, I don't know them, but from what I've seen, because there's very many times where I might've made a statement very similar to them. I never found the ability to asked the questions or or felt safe to explore the questions in my mind growing up simply in church. I didn't find that till I went to school. I literally had, and this is going to sound sad, um, I had to escape the church and hit 
academia before I could find a faith I could stand on. That certainly gives us something to consider. Now let's return to the story of Bryce Stampanoni in Leyte Island. What happens next? Um, pretty much our, our platoon got off and staged in an area, set up their tents because we knew it was going to rain at some point. It's the Philippines. So we just got everybody staged and, you know, got accountability of all of our gear and whatnot. And then uh, they grouped everybody up and, uh, sorry, they sorry. grouped everybody up and uh, everybody started digging in shifts. So they would take half the platoon, so maybe 15 guys. They'd go out and dig for a few hours, come back, rest, while the other 15 guys went out and dug. What do you mean dig? Like by hand? Uh, we had small shovels, E-tools, the kind that fold up. They're about two feet long. And, uh, I mean, there were some bigger shovels there too, but I don't think we ever got any. You're, d- you're digging out with those little military collapsible shovels. Oh, yeah. Yeah. A whole, a whole village. Yeah. Well, trying to. The the first place that they wanted us to dig was where the school was supposed to be located. And I think we probably tried to dig down to about 10 feet, but everything was filling with water. So once you got about three feet down, you know, the water just started pooling in. And uh, they were able to get some sort of an excavator out there. I remember there was one or two out there that were trying to work. And I think they got down to about 10 or 15 feet and they couldn't find anything. So then we just started spreading out. You know, we had, um, I don't know what you would call it, but, you know, kind of like a, a command element that kind of knew where we were supposed to be digging, looking for things, and, you know, trying to find survivors. Um, so they were telling us where to go and, you know, stuff like I mean, that. After, f- after f- six or seven days now at this point, like you're not... It's just a recovery effort. Yeah. You know, like, finding survivors isn't very likely. I believe out of the couple of days that we were actually there there might have been two or three survivors that were actually found and it just happened to be because they were in a you know a building that probably had some bricks so it created an air pocket when you're in the moment and you're there Mm -hmm. you're just operating on instinct like you're just going through your you've been trained for all this type of stuff and so oh no i've never been trained to go dig out bodies in a you know recovery operation digging through mud and finding bodies there's nothing that could have prepared me for that i was prepared to go out and hunt humans you know in a combat situation not to find kids you know or see kids being drug out of the mud that have been baking for a week I personally didn't find any bodies, but other guys in my immediate area, you know, they would dig and like I said, these holes would fill with water pretty quickly and they'd shove their, you know, shovel in the ground and then all of a sudden they'd see some blood start coming up into the water and then maybe like a chunk of hair and they'd reach down and they'd feel a head or, you know, something like that or a body part. They'd find an arm and bring it out. You know, the the land had slid and been going so fast that was literally blowing clothes off these people's backs and you know severing limbs and stuff like that so that's that's what we were finding was parts of people or you know the the whole people that we were finding you know they'd been baking for you know six seven days by now so they were bloated you know so you'd carefully try to take them out of the hole and then they had a um there was like a creek that was kind of running through it and that one shack that was still left standing 
they had, I think the locals had made like a makeshift fence so that you couldn't see in there, but that's where all the bodies were, were placed. But I remember specifically, there was a little girl that asked me if I would go and find her mom. Her mom was still there. And, you know, I didn't have the heart to tell her there was nobody, nobody left. Are you experiencing the effects of that like in real time while you're there? Are you sort of in shock at the moment or are you just on, are you just in sort of the robotic mode of doing? Exactly. Yeah. So, so we, you, were, we were there to do a job. So that's what we did. You know, nothing really hit me until I was back on the ship. You know, when we're getting all of our gear back on, we're cleaning it and we're taking showers and we're all talking about it and talking about our experiences and what we saw. And then that's when everything started really setting in. So what's set in? What, what, what comes across your mind? Like, what do you start thinking about? For me, leaving that site, I remember looking back up in the mountain and then looking at the shack, and you can see the bodies through the fence, and they had put lime or lye or something all over the bodies. They were all powdered with this white, you know, stuff. Um, I remember looking at it and thinking, why would God do this? Why would he let this happen? You know, and I just, I had so many questions. When we were back on ship, you know, we were, we were asked if anybody would like to see the chaplain. And, you know, so I went and talked to him and I told him I was struggling with some of this stuff and I just didn't understand why, you know, and he said, well, you know, God has a plan for everything and we don't always have the answers, but you know, there's a reason for it. I just thought, what could the reason possibly be for this? You know, what good can come of this? Who can learn something from this? I just, I didn't understand it, and I didn't, I guess I just didn't believe that my God would let something like this happen. So for me, that was kind of the point where I lost my faith. As you're talking with the chaplain, what is the experience like of, I mean, do you, in a sense, like, make a like a whiteboard in your mind where you're making schematics up and you go well if this equals this or like like are you are me making this active decision to go well i guess i just don't want to believe anymore no i'm it wasn't a decision it was like you know when you find out the babies aren't dropped off by storks anymore and that it's your parents having sex you know it's like everything i knew to be true it was just a farce and the whole world comes crashing down around you, you know, and there was no one there to insulate me and lift me up. He just let me walk away, you know, and it, I don't think it was anything that he did wrong. You know, my chaplain, I think it was just he didn't recognize it. You know, I didn't say enough to him to for him to key on to that. 1 Thessalonians 5:14 We urge you brothers to warn those who are idle encourage the timid help the weak be patient with everyone As Bryce faces this tragedy the questions begin to swirl around in his mind regarding his faith in a good God Bryce seems to understand that these questions are not just emotional but spiritual, and so he comes to a spiritual advisor to ask for ways to cope and understand better. 
the answers he receives leaves him wanting. And it makes me wonder if there is a better way for the church to approach these things. If we could somehow lay a better foundation for our people in advance, before these tragedies come. What if questioning wasn't the exception to the rule, but rather the expectation? And what if along that questioning process, we were, like Paul says, patient with everyone? Here's my friend Kevin Bruschert again. When I started asking some of the more difficult questions, they were not welcome in the evangelical Christian kind of system that I was a part of. What ended up really benefiting me well was when I started to ask questions outside of my own faith stream, but still within the framework of Christianity, I started to realize that there was a wider acceptance of thought within Christianity. In other conversations, you've told me you have a group of friends that are asking very similar questions to the ones that you've been wrestling with. And these appear to be the same questions that Josh and Marty are wrestling with. So is this like a cross-generational thing, or is this a specific group of people? All the guys who I'm talking about who are struggling with their faith in their 40s now, we're all around the same age. Like, I don't hear anybody... Like, none of the boomers are having these watershed moments. It's really kind of this Gen X group and younger that are sort of having this, this this watershed moment in the church of like, holy crap, what's happening? Like, what? why are these things happening? Why can't we have these conversations? Or even uncovering the, the poor theology that I think a lot of us were taught growing up and that's and that's where things come off the rails because people get really really defensive when you start challenging business as usual and i think that's the crux of what's going on with josh harris and with marty sampson what we should be looking at we shouldn't be looking at these guys and criticizing them what we should be looking at is wait a minute the system that these guys came through was it helpful to them Like, did we set these guys up to fail? Because I think that organizationally, I think the church set these guys up to fail. And I think they need to own that if they're going to grow past this. We got to stop criticizing these guys, stop throwing them under the bus and, and labeling them and other Christian rock stars writing blogs about how, you know, this is the moment where we have to decide what we really believe and all this stuff. It's like crazy. It's like everybody's capitalizing on something that we really should be mourning over. I think Kevin's right about the younger generations being the ones primarily wrestling with these issues. But just to be sure, I brought my son, Ethan, in to sit down and talk about it and an experience that he faced. You're 13 now. You've started to ask some pretty significant questions regarding your belief in the Bible and what that means specifically. You described an event to me where you went to a youth group get together um, last summer or the summer before? Two summers ago. Two summers ago. And you you started to have doubts about some of the things that these the people in the camp, the pastor and friends of yours were saying about the age of the earth. How old did they tell you the earth was? 6,000 to 10,000 years old. And you started to have question marks in your head about 
about that, right? Yeah. And and so the first time you brought that up when you were at that camp, how did that go? Um it it didn't go too well, to be honest. They uh, I was in a group of friends who all knew each other and all these friends thought alike. Like they all really thought along the same lines of reasoning. So whenever I would ask something, they would all give the same exact answer and be in complete agreement with each other. So they had said something like, well, obviously the earth is 6,000 years old because of this. And I said, wait, what? I thought that science said this. And then when I had said that, all these friends sort of went in attack mode and like destroyed everything that I said the pastor came up and sided with those friends and just told me that what I was saying was false like that can't be a thing so stop (laughs) after that scenario because of how those people reacted to how to to what I was saying I thought that that's how every Christian was going to react to what I said it it sort of pushed me into an area where I didn't talk to anybody after it because I kept on getting the same exact judgmental um, answers to what I was saying and for a long time I didn't talk to anybody about it just turns out that I was talking to the wrong people this year, I started talking to other friends about it, and I'm noticing that there is other people who can disagree with me, but also have a very good conversation about these things. The church needs to be a safe place to come and ask questions and explore our faith in God. And that means that we have to be willing to let people go to the places that they need to go without sitting in judgment over them and pushing them away. Thankfully, Matt Leibarger has some more thoughts on how the church can do this better. Either we have to change ourselves by putting ourselves in new situations or the system has to change, right? Like, how can I ever be a teacher if I was never a student under a teacher? Like, how, how could I ever be a doctor if I never went to med school, right? Um, and so something's got to change on that level. We have to get teaching back in. And, and I know that people are going to say, Matt, you obviously lean heavily on, on the teaching side, but discipleship also includes living life together. Uh, it's more than just the teacher student relationship, of course. you know, and, and it does, but I, I often liken it to, well, if I'm going to go back and just keep the discussion on the scholastic on, on, on academia, um, there was so much learning that I did in the dorm rooms right uh outside of class because you live life together you take class and then afterwards when you're when you're when you're in the pub or or you're hanging out in you know in 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 group living quarters there's so much discussion till two three in the morning as you're eating a late night pizza and drinking a beer that yes so much of your growth happens there it's not just the lesson that happened in the classroom that day it is the rest of living life together with people who are on this journey and i think the disciple student relate or the disciple teacher relationship ought to be the same the issue is i think that many of our churches or 
many people I guess recently I've spoke to. Let's just let's just put it that way. I, I'm using hyperbole a little too much here. It's late at night. Um, many people I've spoken with, I feel like they're only focusing on the wrong half of of the discipleship. The it doesn't really have to be deep theological, philosophical, biblical. We don't we don't need to go in that deep. Let's just hang out and fellowship. Let's let's have dinner together. Uh, let's, you know, sing Kumbaya and maybe pass a peace pipe. I mean, I, I don't know where the conversation's going. <laughs> right. I, I, I live in Seattle. Uh, it's, it's all legal. No, but but it's very feel good. And they're like, you know, I just kind of need Jesus right here in my heart, not, not so much up here in my brain. And and this is discipleship. This is living life together. And I look and go, okay, that's like saying I just want to live in dorms and I don't ever want to step foot in a classroom. That doesn't work at a college. You can't say I just want the dorm life, and I don't want. Wait, who, who's what, what's the movie? Uh, Van Wilder. I mean, he got that for a little <laughs> while, right? Like Christ hasn't called us to be Van Wilders. Um, yeah. You can't. I mean, the dorm life's amazing, and the living life together is amazing. But it's because it's centered, at least in this analogy, it's centered around the 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 school, the institution, the classroom, the learning, and then that other's just the. That's just the icing on the cake because learning so much more than just the classroom. Discipleship needs all that other stuff. But if it's just that other stuff, it's the worst education you'll ever get. Mm. And then when one thing comes up that makes you question your belief, you get to write a statement going, why aren't, why is anyone talking about this? No one's talking about this. Peace out. I'm gone. And you go, no, you just, you're a Van Wilder. You know, you got stuck in the dorms. And so we got to make sure that people aren't being sold that as discipleship in the same way that you'd be pissed if your kid was sold, you know, a hundred thousand dollar degree to school, but he just lived in dorms and never went to class. Like, yeah. like we have to guard against people being sold a, a bag of goods and having it called a you know, discipleship. It's been over 13 years since a mudslide on Leyte Island destroyed a village and a man's faith. Bryce Stampanoni is now returning to ask some of the tough questions he didn't feel like he fully explored back then. The first time that you and I met, mm-hmm. what, five years ago, mm-hmm. give or take, uh, in the cul-de-sac, uh, you guys, we were living in a little house and you guys moved in a couple of houses away from us in the same little cul-de-sac. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and same we, house. <laughs> same house, same floor plan, just flipped. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we became fast friends. And I, uh, at that point, I feel like you were in roughly the same place in your journey spiritually. Like you, you saw things the same way mm-hmm. that you did just after the chat. Like you're just like, yeah. I was in no place. Yeah. You're just like, I'm not even, this isn't even a thing for me. Yeah. Um, I, I have seen, uh, in the, uh, even the past six, six months, Mm -hmm. but definitely over the past two years, um, you've been beginning to ask some questions again and explore that part of your, your faith or lack of faith. You're, you're just, you're just asking, revisiting those questions. Mm -hmm. So where are you now? Like in what ways have you been processing lately and how do you feel about these questions of faith now? Um, for me, you know, my wife is a believer, you know, and she's super into church and loves going and my kids love going. And, uh, you know, 
with our conversations, you know, you know that I love that my kids love to go to church and I like to go with them. I want to be a part of that. You know, I'm for myself, I'm searching and, you know, I like asking the questions. I like, I like the involvement that we get from our group, you know, um, I don't know. I'd, I, I'm not in the same place that I was, you know, even last year. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm still searching. I'm still listening and taking everything in. You know, I'm, I'm finding that, or I'm learning that everything's not just black and white. You know, it's not just God has a plan. That's what it is. If you don't agree with it, then whatever. I've told you before, I see that you're on a journey. Like I, I, I do look at your life as your friend and I see you asking these deep questions. I see you engage in ways um, and, and talk about things that, you know, not everybody takes the time out of their life to talk about these things. Mm-hmm. A lot of people just don't deal with spiritual questions. Um, and you are dealing with those things. You're asking those things. You're diving in and you're going through this. And I believe that you're, um, you're in a place where I think God is trying to help you to understand that who he is, is bigger than maybe the way it was presented to you in the past. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think he's trying to rewire that circuitry a little bit and say, Hey, Bryce, um, I know that you were told I operate this way and I just, I'm trying to help you pause and realize that my character and the way that I work in the world is really complex. It's not simple. And there's a lot of discussion to be had about it. And I want you to know me, not based off somebody else's ideal, but I want you to sit, sit with me for a while and then let me show you some new aspects of my, of my godhood, you know, and how I, how I do things, how I operate. Um, so I, I just have a lot of faith and it's exciting and inspiring to me to watch you walk this path out. And I, I do believe that you're heading in a really cool direction. So I appreciate your story. I appreciate where you're at and I love hanging out with you every week. So thank you for being here, being part of the group, being my friend and, uh, and sharing your story with us. Cause it, I think this is going to help people. Thank you. All right, man. My friend Bryce Stampanoni is on a journey in his life right now. He's asking tough questions and he needs a lot of room to be able to explore and find out what he believes about God. The church needs to be a place for him to ask those questions and not be condemned. Same thing is true for Marty Sampson, Josh Harris, and myself. I've been walking the road toward what I thought was going to be official ministry for 12 years. I've been pursuing ordination with my denomination. And when I began recording for this podcast back in July, I was still attending church on a weekly basis. And that is no longer true. Last week, I decided I needed to leave. I prayed about it with my wife. We talked through it and we decided it's time for us to close that chapter. I now meet every week in my house with a group of friends, including Bryce Stampanoni. And we intentionally create a space to ask tough questions. 
The purpose of this podcast is to encourage anyone who seems to be on the same journey that we're traveling. We do want to find God. We do want to know about him. We want to read the Bible and dive into good books and have great discussions. But we need room to breathe. And we need the church to be a safe place to do that. And if the institution isn't going to be that, then we need to create something else. Matt Leibarger had a couple of thoughts on what it looks like to ask these questions for those of us who are struggling. And I thought it was a good way for us to close out our time together. I think the Eastern Church gets it right when they talk about theosis. That this is a, our, our life is continuing to be more and more like God. And that, that means having ideas, learning ideas, unlearning those ideas after they're challenged, relearning new ideas. And it doesn't change. And so for anyone who feels like, I mean, unless you're on your deathbed right now, you might feel like you've come to a conclusion you've left or you've decided you are no longer, right? Christian or part of your church or, you know, whatever label you want to put at the end of that sentence. Uh, and, and I would look at you in the same way that I wish people would have looked at me. And, and luckily I did have profs and, and I did have fellow students and they, uh, do this for me, but they looked and said, Hey, you might go home tonight and feel like it's over, but tomorrow you're going to wake back up and you're going to continue to learn. And this, since you're not on your deathbed, this might only be chapter three, you know, in a 20 chapter narrative that is your life. Hmm. Right. And so I would just say, I, I apologize for anyone that takes a snapshot of where you are right now, when it's, I think it ought to be normative and you ought to have every right to be wherever you are in your chapters, right? And if, if anyone takes a snapshot of where you have the right to be and they, and they end up putting a label on you, heretic, apostate, uh, and they begin to start putting judgment on why I, I just want to say, I'm sorry, because it's utter bullcrap um, for that to happen. And I, and I, I fear that when we do that, uh, we also might, I mean, obviously we can have theological debates on providence, but let me just take one side of the coin. I, I wonder if we don't hinder, uh, 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 I don't know if we don't help shape the next chapter in a negative way uh, by doing that. I wonder if we hinder a return or continue to growth. So my empathy goes out to anyone who's judged as if it's the last chapter of their life. Someone wants to close the book on them when the book's not closed yet. So wherever you are on this journey, I pray that this week you would hang out with some good friends, eat a good meal, have a good discussion, and remember the words of scripture in Jude 1 and 1 Thessalonians 5. Be merciful to those who doubt. Encourage those who are timid. Take tender care of those who are weak and be patient with everyone. I'd like to say a special thank you to Bryce Stampanoni, Matt Leibarger, Kevin Bruschert, Joshua Stump, Ethan McCool, Krista McCool, and Clint Bryan and the Audio Journalism Department at Northwest University in Kirkland, Washington. Also, to anyone else out there who's provided prayer, discussion time, audio equipment, and anything else to help this journey along, we appreciate you. My name is Travis McCool. I've been your host, and God bless you.